Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday! It's Tuesday! Freaking Tuesday. And I'm feeling extra ready to record a podcast today. Are you? Yeah, I'm feeling so good. I think part of the reason is I'm looking at you right now and you're wearing a backwards hat. And you got these backwards hat vibes that are like sexy but also rebellious. It is pretty hot, Megan. Oh, thank you. I love the backwards hat life. Actually, I'm doing it right now for a reason I didn't tell you. Yeah. It's because I haven't washed my hair in three days. <laughs> I've been really into the scalding hot bath life. Yeah. But once you do that, it's really hard to wash your hair. So I needed to kind of protect myself from all that hair angst that's going on. So the choice for you is between bath or wash your hair. So we might be in a uh, long-term cycle right now where you don't wash your hair for years based on how much you're loving this bath life. I have a, I actually set hard and fast rules okay. with myself on this because I could let it get extremely out of control. <laughs> I must wash my hair every four days. Okay. So we are, we are getting closer and inching closer to that point. Well, you could put your head down over the pan and then we could fry some potatoes in it tonight <laughs> for dinner uh, with all that oil you got going on. Mm, toss some, some sweat salt on there too. It'll be great. Yeah, but you are bringing that sexy energy. I really like it. And I I mean, what's giving you that ultimate reserve of sexiness? Okay, I have decided, this is the new podcast thing, is before recording a podcast, we either have to go really, really easy in training or do a batshit hard workout. (laughs) And those are the energy vibes that we need for this podcast. I love it. Yeah, I feel the same way. So when I go really hard, like when I do a just pure track workout or hill workout or something like that, and then I put a little bit of caffeine in my system after, I feel like I could take over the world. I feel like a magical ox that is so <laughs> strong and powerful. Um, and meanwhile, when I go moderate, sometimes I'm just tired. And oh my God. that ends up being a huge problem for It's me. such a tired energy for me. That grayscale area is just not easy. I also find myself being more judgmental in that tired energy oh. space. So when I go either direction really easy or, you know, that like hard workout and caffeine mixture in there, yeah. I'm ready to let it rip. So you went very easy today. Yes, very easy today. I have been embracing the zone one life. It's actually yeah. for me the most discipline that I like require as an athlete is actually embracing those zone one easy days. And it's all extra good for the podcast and for your mitochondria. Maybe that's what you're manifesting in this podcast. It's just big mitochondria energy. My mitochondria are wearing backwards hats right now. That's that's the energy. They haven't washed their hair in three days. That's the energy they're going for. Well, I hear they're the powerhouse of the cell, much like a big magical oxen, but inside of our bodies and very, very small. Um, So we have an amazing podcast for you today. Um, So a quick outline of what we're going to do. We're going to go over some podcast stats that are really fun. Uh, A little bit of a divergence into authenticity and being weird in a uh, big discussion about artificial intelligence. Very strange there. Um, We're going to have a tip of the week, which is a new thing on barefoot running. Uh, Go over some running news. Do a taper follow-up. Talk about layering and training elements. Do four fun things and a new study based on pacing on terrain. Do you think we're going to get to all that stuff? That is so much fun. I was just about to ask you, I don't think we're going to get to all of that, but maybe we will. We talk fast. It depends how much we talk about sexy mitochondria as just like digressions throughout the episode. Well, you led with sexy mitochondria and I thought you were just going to end at sex. Depends (laughs) on how much we talk about sex. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting time in this house coming back from pregnancy you know, coming back in terms of training, coming back in terms of intimacy. It's all a very exciting uh, return to normalcy over here. The hot baths, the scalding hot baths are returning to. I mean, I couldn't take those during pregnancy, which is why I'm like rocking them right now. So we've got all kinds of things popping here. <laughs> yeah, it's so popping off. Um, so first, let's talk about some um, podcast reflections. It was really cool this week. So Spotify did its wrapped and we do this podcast through um, a company that's owned by Spotify. So we get all of this data from Spotify 
rely on our listenership and things like that. And amongst other really cool things, the podcast was top 1% in the whole world in terms of shares. Um, listenership has gone up by 150% in 2022. What? Even though we started this in 2020, it's kind of cool how much this has um, increased. And to layer it on to- all on top of that, only 20% of our audience actually comes from Spotify. So it shows a lot of how this growth has manifested over the last years. And we wanted to say thank you. We love you. And it means so much to us that you're on this journey, whether you listen on Spotify or not. In fact, like Apple Podcasts is probably better for other people finding it. Um, but I hear the young the youngins like Spotify. It was so wild and actually so meaningful to go through those stats. I mean, yeah. we do this podcast because it's a Tuesday date day between us. And yeah. we would record this podcast even without listeners. But it does bring this extra layer of validation that means a ton to us. So seriously, thank you for sharing it. It was fun. I mean, so many different people were sharing their Spotify unwrapped on Instagram and we got to see us and the company of other podcasts that people were listening to. My personal favorite was we were ranked number one ahead of someone who was listening to a bunch of different podcasts and their number two was White Noise. So we we did better than White Noise, which was awesome. Yeah, I'm guessing that person listened to it to go to sleep or something like that. That's that's Actually, I was thinking either to go to sleep or to come down off of us. You kind of like, after listening to our podcast, you might need a white noise chaser. Or you could say us us two talking behind a mic is another version of white noise. <laughs> Very white sometimes, and uh, we're trying to broaden our horizons a little bit there. Um, so a few reflections on that. Um, one is thinking back to 2020, and I mean, I feel like we lost a lot of audience along the way to get to where we are now. I don't think we changed. We might have gotten better at what we're doing. But um, you know, I was thinking about we used to get so much so many messages from people that just didn't agree with us on things and would say mean, mean words and all that. And I get it and we don't mind it, but, um, that type of thing has really gone off a little bit as I think those people sense our authenticity and they're either out or respect it. (laughs) It's one of those two. I totally agree. Or we're perhaps getting like known enough in the community for what we are, which is positivity, a little bit of ridiculousness, sexy science. And I think people understand what it is. And perhaps some of those people that are not looking for that aren't coming to the podcast too. So I think like we've, we've kind of prevailed to establish ourselves as what we are, which is this authentic mix. And it's hopefully becoming more well known out there. Yeah. And I guess my big like final takeaway for anyone listening is don't change your voice due to critics. Like that's a constant theme on this podcast and it's so much easier said than done. But I know when I create, not just on the podcast, but in writing and everything else, it's so easy to think about the people that criticize you. But the problem is if you end up creating for them, you're going to create self-conscious shit by definition, um, because what makes you special is your unique voice. And so on this podcast, like we make a bunch of dumb jokes and digressions and things like that, not because like it's going to increase our listenership, but because that's who we are at a dinner table, hopefully. And by putting that in the podcast form, like people sense it, whether you're being real or not, people know. And so embrace that, embrace what makes you weird and embrace what makes you different. Um, not because it's going to bring you success, but it's going to be way more fun. And through that process, you're going to find your people. And whether that's one person or tens of thousands of people, like you'll be way more fulfilled because of it. That being said, we haven't changed our voice at all, but we have listened. I mean, people have sent us some feedback that yeah. we have incorporated. If you've noticed, um, we started kind of highlighting our roadmap for the <laughs> podcast and someone help, helpfully emailed us and say, hey, it might be great if you put a roadmap on here. And we listened. Yeah. So actually everyone's 
in a while, we do incorporate some of the feedback. Actually, more than every once in a while, quite often we do. It just we don't necessarily change our whole aura for for the feedback. Well, I would di- I would disagree slightly because I'm the one that gets the feedback, and I don't share the stuff that we're not going to change <laughs> for with you um, because I don't necessarily think that's healthy uh, for you to see all the time. But um, you know, especially that is relevant when you're talking about big issues. So obviously, when we talk about running or jokes or whatever, you get some of that. When we talk about transgender athlete inclusion and, and big important topics, you get a lot more. And so, yes, that probably has di- decreased some of our reach, especially early on in the first year. But I think recently it's expanded it beyond our wildest dreams to where we're one of the top running podcasts in the whole world. And I think it's directly connected to the fact that we lost all that audience at first. If we never did that, we would just be, you know, I don't know, creating self-conscious shit. Well, it's also probably connected to the interviews that we've done. So people are coming to the podcast like, oh, hey, they interviewed Courtney DeWalter. Then they listen to an episode of Just Us on our Tuesday date day, and they're like, oh, man, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I mean, I think one of the ultimate reflections of this that I think has been just a through the looking glass moment for society as a whole um, are these artificial intelligence systems that are coming out now. So, um, you know, the one in particular is called ChatGPM. It's by OpenAI, this big startup. And we were playing around with it before the podcast. And we were putting in just training prompts about running training. And it could nail all of these really complex principles so well. And it points out that like, unless we're being weird, unless whoever you are out there, you're using your unique voice and being creative and doing all these things, Artificial intelligence is coming for us sooner rather than later. Like maybe it's coming for us too, but it was shocking to see it in practice with all these complex topics, designing these really cool prompts in a second that would take me, you know, hours to research. I mean, what sets me apart now is not the ability to research, it's the ability to be weird. I love that. Well, I feel like the theme that artificial intelligence is coming for us, I have heard that for years now. I mean, as I entered into med school, they were like, artificial intelligence is going to replace primary care doctors and radiologists and this and that. And it really hasn't. And I think that's because, you know, we are harboring that human element in what we're doing and what we're practicing. But as I was, we started to explore the AI chat programs this morning. It was actually, I actually had the feeling that, oh my gosh, artificial intelligence (laughs) is actually coming for us and it might already be here. Yeah. I think you were saying it was giving you chills. I mean, it it was wild. It was like, it was so spot on with some of the stuff. And what we were asking, it was a little bit more basic. And I think we were talking about the fact, so we asked it to do a couple of different things. And I think it had a hard time. It really gave out this narrative that it was an expert. This AI system was an expert on certain things. When in reality, there was a lot more like grayscale and gray area to what it was talking about. So that is one big criticism, but it did, it performed quite well for us. Yeah. One of the, um, commentaries I saw on it is that a lot of people are saying, hey, this will replace the smart people you have to hire. And the person that was using it says, hey, we've been using this for a year in beta form. And what we actually think it does is it replaces infinity dumb people. (laughs) Um, So what it's really good at is presenting things in an authoritative manner. So it seems a little bit more complex than it is. That being said, it has a creative ability that is shocking. And um, it points out with things like writing and speaking and all of this, like let your freak flag fly. Because if you don't, the AI will be able to do things that um, blow humans out of the water. If this is the first iteration of some of these things, 
it's just so cool to think about. Well, I totally agree about letting the freak flag fly because why else are we here on earth? It's yeah. so fun to do that and so fun to be authentic. But I would actually argue that the AI system has a pretty good freak flag. And that yeah. is what scared me, actually. That's what gave me goosebumps is like, wow, this AI system is very creative. Yeah. It was almost like that movie Her where I was like, am I starting to fall in love with the AI system? <laughs> They're generating some beautiful stuff. Like I fell in love with you for your intelligence yeah. and your humor and your creativity. And uh, the AI system was kind of doing that this morning. Oh, I love it. I, hopefully they can't attach a vibrator to one of these things. <laughs> I am on the out. So uh, we're going to talk about barefoot running in a second. But in that context, we asked it to just uh, write a rap song in the uh, voice of Ludacris about barefoot running and gave it no other prompt. You could get much more complex if you gave it more prompts. Well, actually, so it generated. So we gave it that first prompt and it generated something that was quite good. Yeah. But I gave it more feedback. I was like, we need more booty jokes yeah, in here. Yeah. So we kept giving it more and more feedback. I asked for more booty jokes and more sex jokes because we, the world needs more of those. <laughs> and it, it actually, each time it iterated and came back with something that incorporated th- this feedback and it was so good. Yeah. And it's learning all the time. So a quick prompt. Uh, primer on what it gave us. My butt is firm and my glutes are tight. I'm a barefoot runner and I'm ready to fight. I'm ludicrous and I'm here to tell that barefoot running is the way to excel. <laughs> my butt is round and my thighs are thick. I'm a barefoot runner and I'm in the mix. I'm ludicrous and I'm here to prove that barefoot running is the way to move. Okay, that is outstanding. Yeah, and if you gave that to ludicrous, he'd be able to give it some of that Atlanta sound mm-hmm. that would make it even better. Um, so, I mean, the AI stuff is very cool right now and I don't think it's like necessarily coming for all of our jobs right away. Um, But I think it does point out that whatever makes you unique is the one thing that these systems will never be able to duplicate. Um, Because if you're unique and unpredictable, even all of the information in the world will make it very tough unless they get into quantum mechanics and can start predicting uh, the movement of particles in random fashion. So I don't think we're quite there yet. And as a result, be so fucking weird. Um, and don't worry so much about the feedback you might get for being weird because I think that feedback wants to throw you into the churn of a machine like this and you don't want to be a part of this intellectual machine. I really, really love that sentiment. And question for you, have you heard of an AI-generated podcast? I mean, certainly that would exist. Yeah, so I have heard of that, yeah. So I was listening to a podcast called Hard Fork. You're kind of putting me on the spot um, by accident because it was the former podcast feed of Kara Swisher's uh, Sway and they did an entire intro to the podcast with their voices deep faked by AI. Whoa. After they had fed it a few podcast episodes. So sure, I'm sure these programs could get our voices and our topics and seem very authentic to what we're doing. But I don't know if we're there yet. And so maybe that maybe that makes my entire thesis come crumbling down here. Well, I'm a little horrified to feed it our our podcast and see what they come back at. I yeah. mean, I feel like it's like the ultimate performance review. It's like, what does AI think of us? Um, it's almost like asking a four-year-old a question and you know they're going to give you like this like very yeah. honest answer. I'd be really concerned about what AI says about our podcast. <laughs> it's so true. Like, um, you know, Skynet and the Terminator is AI taking over the world essentially. And if they use our podcast to program Skynet, I could see an apocalyptic scenario. where you know we say all the time you listening out there you're perfect you're absolutely perfect in all of your imperfections you are perfect but i could see ai taking that and running with it and being like anything that disproves the perfection of one of our listeners 
that thing needs to be eliminated. <laughs> and as a result, this massive universe-wide genocide begins with the idea that our listeners are perfect and anything that disproves it must be destroyed. I feel like you're describing a somewhere called play Star Trek movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, to, to finish it up on this, uh, this is something I wrote in an athlete's training log. Um, they're a much, much, much better writer than me. Um, they've won all these writing awards, but they're struggling a little bit with their some of their work right now. And um, th- here's what I wrote. With writing, all caps, let your freak flag fly. Make it so weird. Make the other people concerned for your mental acuity. <laughs> that is where you'll find the magic that makes you special. And what we're saying here is nothing about AI. It's just that the magic that makes you special often feels a little bit uncomfortable to let out into the world. But that's where the magic happens. Do you know what we should do? We should feed AI the prompt, make the other people concerned for your mental acuity. What you told this <laughs> athlete, I'd be really curious to see what the AI system would come back with. That's so freaking true. Okay, uh, f- final couple things on Spotify Wrapped. Just random asides before we get all the juicy running stuff today. I wanted to have a confession. So we were just talking about some of the hate mail we received in the first year of the podcast in particular. And while some of that was on big, important societal issues, Maybe the biggest portion of it was on how we hated on country music on some of the first few episodes. I think that happened within like the first three episodes of the podcast. And it was all tongue in cheek as most of our stuff like that is. But there was a hint of truth there, right? Um, And I wanted to make a confession. It's that a couple weeks ago, I was looking for a playlist and I stumbled on Upbeat Country. And I went out and I ran 20 seconds faster per mile <laughs> and I found myself doing a hoedown out there and I felt so good. I think it's EPO in music form. So I am back on the country music cha- train even as I fucking hate myself for it. And Uppy Country has permeated our entire household existence yeah. at this point because when you find music that you like, you just keep it going on loop. So you were downstairs the other morning on Zwift listening to Uppy Country on volume 100 <laughs> on our TV. I was on the third floor changing Leo being like, you know, this country music is kind of good. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of good. And it's interesting to reflect on because that criticism we had early on, uh, mostly as a joke, but also partially serious. And what it stems back to for me is my childhood growing up was in one of the towns that they talk about in the songs, right? Like the high school football, the like um, everyone going to the church, all that stuff that just you know embodies rural America. And I think part of my rejection of it was also a rejection of where I grew up and mm-hmm. almost like a version of... Un, like unthought through rebellion. So I want to apologize for all to all of our country music fans. Music still sucks shit, but I also like it, and I hate myself for it. Well, I think the AI system would be outstanding in generating country music. Yeah, it has a very specific form and formulaic <laughs> nature to it, which often involves taking a girl down the back road to do kind of scary things. <laughs> I'm like every country, every I mean, I would appreciate country music a lot more if I knew it came with consent. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> We're going to get more hate mail. (laughs) Yeah, Megan, you just took it a step too far. That being said, you know, when I'm out running, and I think all of our running listeners can really empathize with this, I find my brain wandering a lot. And with the podcast, I'm always thinking of bits about things. And um, I think I came back to you one day and it was like, country music is a lot more funny if you imagine that every song they're singing to a blow-up doll. (laughs) Or to a hostage. Either one works. That's a nicer version of what I just proposed. Uh, Serious question for you, though. So um, Spotify Unwrapped is actually really fun. It's really fun to go through, like, all the songs that you listened to in the last year. But, you know, it starts, it gives this, like, 2022 year in review. It's, like, early December. Do you get a free pass from December 1st to January 1st? Yes. So you can listen to whatever music you want right now, and it's not going to show up in your Spotify Unwrapped. Is that true? That's why I'm listening to country music. Yeah, let your your country music freak flag fly, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, on January 1st, I'm going to give it up cold turkey, 
But until <laughs> then, I'm going for that hoedown. Every time that twang starts, I just find my my hips start bobbing, not in not in a rhythmic fashion because it's country music, but in a fashion. And so that's where I'm at right now with my life. Well, you know what? Leo really seems to like it. Yeah, he does. Um, that being said, I think it shows a lot about country music that a baby is its most uh, avid fan base. He really likes Wheels on the Bus and uh, <laughs> Carrie Underwood. <laughs> Wheels on the Bus could definitely be a country song. Okay, so uh, subscribe to the podcast. Give it five stars wherever you listen. Apple Podcast is the best place to do this for for helping us. Follow it or subs- um, if you can on Apple Podcast. That is really, really helpful. Um, and thanks for everything. I mean, all that stuff was essentially just us to say, you know, you've given us permission to be weird. And, you know, as a result, like I felt so much more fulfilled in the world and in a way that that person that listened to country music back when I was in high school and felt like I needed to escape never could. And so, you know, to bring it all full circle, like absolutely love you all and appreciate everything you've done. And like serious thank you for my note too, is that it really feels like we build a community from this podcast and, you know, your support on Patreon, the emails that we've gotten from people are like, we could have so many listener corner options each week and it just uplifts us so much. It's the fuel that keeps this podcast going every week. And I just, I I have goosebumps sitting here right now because I cannot thank you at all for, you know, everything that you've done for us. But for perspective, Megan also got goosebumps when she heard uh, the ludicrous rap about barefoot big booty running uh, from the chat box. That's so true. I've been rocking the goosebumps recently. It's strange. <laughs> Yesterday, we were tracking CIM all day. I had yeah. goosebumps. I was like, these runners are out there. They're going for it. It must be the, the postpartum hormones. I love it so much. Okay, let's get to some of the running stuff. Uh, I want to start with a new segment. We Actually, I guess we kind of began it last week, but we didn't have a name for it. It's the tip of the week. It's going to be on something interesting about running, training, running form, um, any basically anything that goes straight into making you a faster runner. And we're just going to kick off the podcast with that each week or I like, after the intro. I like that last week you started with tricking your glutes. I feel yeah, like yeah. a very appropriate appropriate form tip. Well, the reason is a lot of people emailed and said it helped them a lot. They were finding themselves running 10 to 20 seconds per mile faster on their flat runs. And so today I wanted to talk about something that you might not think we're big fans of. But we are, which is barefoot running in moderation, uh, very extreme moderation. But I think that there's a ton of evidence that it helps runners develop their strength, particularly in their lower limbs, helps with form, and just helps with how they interact with the ground. You put all those together and it can not only prevent injuries, but make athletes faster. We're big fans of it as coaches. And actually, full disclosure, we've been meaning to talk about this for almost a year (laughs) on the podcast. It has sat on every single podcast outline and we just invariably haven't gotten to it. So we are giving it its due justice now and it's quite important. Well, kind of. I mean, we had like 20 studies for this in our full thing. And right now we're only going to mention one study because... For some reason, we never thought barefoot running was worth a full uh, topic on here. Well, this is the appetizer. We'll get to the barefoot running entree to come. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, But just for a sampling of the studies, a 2015 study in medicine, science, and sports and exercise found that 23 runners ran with higher cadence in um, reduced excessive hip adduction, hip internal rotation, and contralateral pelvic drop when barefoot. So in other words, across a bunch of studies, which this is emblematic of, barefoot running improved the way people's feet interacted with the ground and how their hips acted within running. And so that makes sense because essentially when you run barefoot, you can't have as much sink. So it helps knees and hips 
a lot. It helps how athletes interact um, with their footfall and how they transfer impact and force. But that being said, being extra cautious with it, because while it helps improve cadence, it helps improve footfall, it helps improve, you know, all these different metrics that you're talking about, it does actually have um, a little bit of increased loading on the lower legs. So foot injuries, Achilles injuries, if you start struggle with these injuries, like be really cautious with barefoot running. But I think let's go through examples of when it's beneficial to use barefoot running. So you use barefoot running all the time. Yes. You're constantly out there like wrecking your socks, which are often my socks, (laughs) doing your barefoot running. How many days a week do you barefoot run and in what context? I'm addicted to it. Like it's that country music. (laughs) Um, So this is how I use it and it's how I recommend athletes use it too. Um, But I'm really cautious with it, with it, as you said, because it does increase loading on the metatarsals and in the plantar. So athletes that struggle with that, especially at first, could get royally fucked by this. And it's not worth it in that context. But it's been hugely game-changing to me over time. And whenever whenever I get away from it, I find myself breaking down counterintuitively. Mm-hmm. So all I do, I do my normal run. Everything is the same. And then after the run, I strip down to my socks. In other words, I just take my shoes off. And during the summer... I'll jog on either really smooth pavement or sidewalk really slow or on grass if I have it. Reality is I usually don't have grass as an option, so I don't use that. I just use very smooth pavement. So um, it's not like normal running. It's just slow running to focus on this form. Um, And then in winter, I go down to the treadmill and set it on 3% and a few miles an hour, so like six miles per hour for me where my heart rate's really low and just bounce around on that for three to five minutes. So that's all it is. Two minutes at the low end, five minutes at the top end, all very slow, just strengthening up everything at the end of tail end of runs. I appreciate that you highlighted the slow nature of it because I think sometimes when athletes think about barefoot running, they think about striding or they think about, you know, running really fast. And in reality, you get these benefits and these gains without having to run fast. And sometimes I think, what is your take on doing barefoot strides? I think to me, it's a little bit of excessive stress on the body, though I know some coaches really swear by it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many success stories there are of barefoot strides after 22 years old. Um, so for context here at college programs, mm-hmm. barefoot strides will often be a part of it. If you go to a college track meet, even the really big ones, you often see athletes doing this barefoot running in the infield grass. Um, and so I think the barefoot running has a great purpose. I think barefoot strides, you have to be incredibly mechanically efficient That's my point for that too. to be yep. effective. Um, and I, I wouldn't be able to do it even as someone that could go out and run a long distance run, mostly barefoot or in sandals. Um, And all that's to say, even though I love barefoot principles and think it does make me a better runner, I run in thick boys. I run in my Hoka tectons, right? So I don't think this is about your everyday mileage. This is about basically no different than any type of mobility or strength work you're doing. This isn't a part of your impact loading um, framework. This is a part of your strength work framework. Well, the thick boy point is actually extra important because I think athletes that are training in yeah. thick boys, so if you're training in you know, maximally cushioned shoes, which have a big role these days in ultra running and in ultra running performance, Definitely. I think barefoot running then has an outsized importance to it because otherwise you're starting to lose some of that loading um, tension throughout your feet. And you also start to lose the feedback with the ground. Definitely. And so reinforcing that through barefoot running is outstanding for cadence, outstanding for, you know, thinking about running economy and efficiency and all those different variables. And so the weirdest part, this kind of gets back to that, of the barefoot running journey for me is often I'll let this drop for a week or two. Like it's not an essential part of training, so you can do that. And where it manifests 
is in my high hamstring. So I've had a couple years mm-hmm. of chronic high hamstring pain that goes on and off and it doesn't affect my running at all, but I do feel it. Um, and it gets so much worse when I stop this couple minutes of slow barefoot jogging. Not sure why that is, but I imagine it points out just how much this is involved in um, your form and hip abduction and things like that. So, um, you know, of course I am more, in, I'm not so injury prone. What do you think you're going to do on this? Because, you know, with your autoimmune condition, you do have slightly more tendency towards injury. Well, I think for me, it becomes extra important because it's, you know, if I'm running fewer miles, yeah. I think, you know, building up and building in with barefoot running. So as I build back postpartum, um, the barefoot running is going to have an outsized role in terms of, you know, getting my body ready to biomechanically be, you know, stimulated for running. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important for athletes that are building back after injury, building back after a long break. I would up that to like every day. I think it's well, helpful yeah. to work in two minutes of barefoot running for those athletes. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's, it will have an outsized roles going yeah. forward. But this is controversial, you know, because I think it's a dogmatic spectrum with barefoot running. So, um, you know, all of the five fingers and things like that in the old days essentially said, this is a way of life that you need to live by this. And in fact, in 2014, there was a class action lawsuit against Vibram for overstating their claims about how it um, is natural and what it does for injury rates. So it points out that this is not a lifestyle. This is not a behavior practice we want an athlete always doing. It is just something that improves the way an athlete runs with real shoes. Um, so our feet are great, but we did not evolve to run really fucking fast, uh, 50Ks. So don't view this as like your panacea for how you should approach training. View it as just a small supplement to add on at the tail end of some of your runs. And only if you're being really safe and aware of plantar and metatarsal things, keeping it slow. I love the treadmill for this. Okay. Such an important point. Shoes yeah. are a gift. I actually had an athlete this, this weekend win a marathon in sandals <laughs> and I, I opened the, the Strava file and the training log and I was like oh shit what did athletes say to you about that well there was I mean I actually you know what let your freak flag fly be weird (laughs) this is why the athlete enjoys running which I think is the difference between you and I and coaching style I'm sure you would tell that athlete like absolutely don't do this and I'm like you know this is part of the athlete's ethos and aura and so I support this but the athlete did not tell me that ahead of time because he knew the answer would be don't do that oh hell no do you know what you said in the log after you found out I supported it. You supported it? Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, I think he could run faster in a pair of shoes and he might, we might have a, you know, a fun coach athlete debate about that, but you know, it's part of his ethos and auras and yeah, I support it. Yeah. You're, you're an interesting coaching style compared to me. I'd be like, what the fuck is your problem? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sandals in a running race. But I think the athlete knows this is yeah, my yeah. point. It's like, of course, you know what I mean? There's other shoes and other footwear options and he wanted to wear sandals. So I like it. Well, you're perhaps I need to learn from you. Your equanimity with coaching needs to be uh paralleled by me well i think we both you know we're both learning from each other i've i've become as a coach a lot more not confrontational but i really i point out areas um you know i think this is part of the athlete's aura but if it wasn't i would say oh heck no we are wearing (laughs) you know we are wearing some solid you know either carbon shoes or really fast running shoes to replace the sandals but i mean i just think it depends on the coach athlete relationship so be very cautious as you work into this maybe even start with 30 seconds of bouncing around your house that's a great place to do this a lot of the time in winter is you can just run around your lower story of your house for a couple minutes and that will be enough to at least start this process and make it safe okay um, the perks of that too are it doesn't destroy socks yeah you owe me a lot of socks I from do. your barefoot running we need like a sock tax in our relationship <laughs> especially in california where the weather was so much better so i found myself running barefoot on the pavement a lot and the poop pavement was so silky smooth um, which was really good for developing my form because on pavement, you really get that feedback and you develop this fast. Um, but on the downside, I steal a lot of your socks. And 
and the pavement rips them up fast. So there's a mm-hmm. bunch of holes and I try to blame them on Addy and you're not having it. <laughs> <laughs> I know at this point. <laughs> okay, let's get into some running news here. Uh, I think we have five pieces of fun running news. The first is on doping. Um, so lots of interesting stuff out there right now about doping, but what we wanted to focus on is personal story. So almost everyone, when they talk about this online as professional athletes is like, I've had this stolen from me, whether it's a medal or prize money or anything like that. I don't think until this weekend, we'd ever been able to point to a specific time where something was directly stolen to us, stolen from us by someone that was doping. Can you remember any? No, we can't. But this weekend we found out and it was, I felt like, I don't know. I felt vindicated. I felt validated. It was great. It was a really important moment in our lives because back in 2011, we finished second at the Sweetheart 5K in somewhere in North Carolina. I don't remember what, what town it was in. Um, so there was like $300 for the first place couple. And we went into this cocky. Megan was a field hockey player who could run fast. I was a improving runner who was getting better and better. And I had this sexy girl by my side with her backwards hat <laughs> mitochondria. And we stepped up and we got our asses stomped by just a few seconds. Um, but the woman that was a part of that uh, duo just recently uh, got popped for doping. So I'm not sure if she was doping in 2011 or I don't know the details of the case. Perhaps there's complications there. But for me, I want that $150 back that we lost because I think we still got $150 per second. Do what I want back. They actually gave candy. It was like the Sweetheart 5K. So there was a giant candy prize for first place. I don't care about the money. I want that candy. (laughs) I want that candy still from 2011. I would eat it, even the one from 2011. But Megan, money can buy candy. That's true. We can buy an Amazon uh, style, like maximal thing of candy. You know, but it's better. It's better when it's gifted to you. I swear. But no, I mean, it was, that was actually, it was bonkers thinking about that. I mean, I had a moment where I was, you know, this was before I walked onto the track team and I remember losing to her by a substantial margin and I felt like the weak one in the relationship (laughs) I was like we would have won if it wasn't for me yeah and it was a little bit actually like as I was thinking about walking onto the track team I was like am I good enough this person just trucked me and here she was on steroids well maybe Um, but I mean on a more serious note like I think this does point out any athlete that's aspiring to reach the top level of sport that's listening to this podcast because I know we have a ton with thousands of athletes that really want to be the best they can be never cut corners. It's so tempting to pursue those paths. And I think, especially thinking about like Megan in 2011, when her entire future was ahead of her and she sees how far she has to go, you can understand how if she was exposed to the wrong mentors at that time, perhaps you can do something without realizing that you're doing it and then you get in a dark path and it's not your fault, but you're there, you know? And I think that that's what happens in a lot of these doping stories um, that we don't really hear the full narrative of. So if you ever find yourself tempted to try to cut corners, just remember this conversation and don't do it. I know that's a simplification, but I think it almost always starts as a really small thing that then becomes a big thing and it doesn't make people bad humans, um, but it is a really bad choice. And you know, I think the way to get fewer people to dope is not necessarily to scare them away from your future is ruined, but to appeal to, you know, these first principles of loving kindness in the world. Well, it's interesting that you reflect on this because, you know, my first thought is give me that candy. (laughs) I want that candy we missed out in 2011. But actually my second immediate thought is just an undertone of sadness Definitely, because I mean, the mental health struggles that it must take for someone to want to cut corners. Like I know, even though you say that it's something that's, you know, it might be inherent in a situation like this or for someone that's like really, really freaking wanting 
wanting to go for it. Um, the like mental health nature to be at that place, to Definitely. want to cut those corners makes me really sad on behalf of this person. And so, yes, I want our candy, but also too, it just, I mean, I think there's so much complexity to doping and I think we yeah. should really do a full discussion on this at some point. We alluded to it in a prior podcast, but I think just going through the whole nature of it and how challenging it is. And I really feel for this person Definitely. actually. You know what she should have taken? What? Athletic greens. Oh yeah. Um, because that is like, it gives you the power of doping, but it's totally legal and it's certified safe for sport, which is pretty amazing. You know, I think it hits your mitochondria. Oh, it definitely is your mitochondria. I think that explains why we see such great numbers and such great performances off it. So athleticgreens.com slash swap. Um, it actually is safe for sport, which is one of the main reasons we represent it on this podcast because we see great results for athletes in their speed and in um, adaptation, but it's one of the only things that has all these adaptogens that is also certified. So, you know, it has tons of pro athletes taking it for that reason. It's not necessarily that they can't get this stuff anywhere else that's included. It's that this is the only place that a lot of those things can be um, um, ingested with without risk. So athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. And we love that as coaches. I mean, safe for sport as coaches is yeah. like the best thing ever. And so being able to tell athletes that it's safe is awesome. So get, get those athletic greens. Yeah. It's like candy for your mitochondria. Okay. Number two on the running news, very cool thing happened at the McDowell Mountain Trail Races this um this week. So in the 50 miler, the winners got the golden shoe, which is they earned a Solomon contract from winning the race. And I think it's such a great model for the future of the sport where just one event, it's not just like the Olympic trials, you go to the Olympics Mm -hmm. or a national championship, you win a national championship. It's like one event leads to a shoe contract or something like that. And I could see this really expanding in a way that helps the shoe companies or other sponsors and helps the athletes have some avenue toward, you know, this really amorphous, difficult concept of sponsorship. I love that. And I would love to see it more at shorter distance races too. Yeah. Um, we've been talking on this podcast about how, you know, longer distances are kind of dominating in the sponsorship um, in athletes securing sponsorship deals. And it would be so fun to have a short distance avenue for this. So yeah. it'd be great to have that at the U S mountain champs. That would be awesome. But I think it made me reflect on the idea that sponsorships right now are hard yeah, to so get hard. for athletes. I mean, we often play the role of agents for athletes, just informal agents helping athletes like think about deals. And they've become increasingly challenging, which I think is a sign of growth of our sport, which is outstanding. Like we want our sport to be growing, but it's also putting this strain on availability of sponsorships and it can be hard for athletes. Yeah. It's interesting that you said the U.S. mountain running championships, because like that's no longer a ticket to a shoe deal, which is insane because the U.S. mountain running championships are like create the best runners in the country, you would assume. And they do. And so I think to every runner out there who's listening and, and like idealizing this part of the process. If you want this to be a bigger part of your life, think about ways you can broaden it beyond just a shoe company mm-hmm. uh, bankrolling some of what you do. Because a lot of what you see online are not real huge deals or big enough to um, justify you know, giving most of your life to it. And they're getting so much more difficult to find. Um, and I think that's because the sport's getting so much bigger. So there's a huge denominator of athletes that are really good and going for it in different races. And so um, whereas in the old days, we might have had 10 athletes back in 1995 and then 100 athletes in 2005, we might have 1,000 now or even more that are, are you know pursuing this. So be careful there because I think it's a... It's a winding road that has lots of trolls on it. But I also think there's a lot of different ways to make money through running that don't involve sponsorship deals. So like writing, coaching, coaching is an amazing avenue for staying connected and running and, you know, being able to live kind of like a pro athlete life at times and, you know, being able to support the community. So think about, you know, different options if you can't, if you struggle with sponsorship. Yeah. And want to give a big shout out to Brian Curl, um, athlete we coach who I think is going to take over the world. And 
I hope that that Solomon contract has an opt-out cause for what he's going to do in 2023 <laughs> um, or Solomon's willing to step up that offer. Um, okay, number three is the Western States 100 Lottery and the Hard Rock Lottery. Both happened this weekend, which is a big moment in Toronto world. It was so fun. So much fun. Actually, it's fun, a little fun for us. Yeah. I feel like the lotteries are a day where ultra winners learn a lot about statistics. <laughs> the cruel, cruel reality of statistics. Yeah. Every year, I'm reminded of how you teach me about statistics every day, you know, with your PhD knowledge of that field. And I'm always like, but you're saying there's a chance when there's like one in a million. And that's kind of how people approach the Western States lottery. Um, so for athletes that had one ticket in the lottery, they were looking at a little bit less than 1% chance of getting selected. But even athletes that had been in the lottery for like five years were below 10% chance of getting selected. So a lot of people out there listening probably had their hearts broken a little bit. And we want to say, sorry, that fucking sucks to go through that moment of, oh, but I might have a chance. And then it's like, actually, I don't really. Um, and then there's probably people out there that got selected and we want to say to you, hell yeah, celebrate it. Try not to feel pressure. Go out there. Have fun. Let that freak flag fly. Yeah, we have athletes on our team that got selected with a 1% chance. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's an amazing moment of belief. But then, you know, we also have athletes. I have athletes that have been in the lottery for nine years and have yeah. gotten selected. And, you know, it can be really cruel sometimes. Statistics fucking suck. Um, but one thing I do want to point out is that off the lottery is Scotty Hawker from New Zealand, who has been uh, second at CCC, third at UTMB, has won tons of international races. Very exciting that uh, he's in the race. And I think um, it could be the first lottery ap- athlete to uh, win the whole damn thing since Cat Bradley back in 2017. I was going to say, are you forgetting Cat Bradley? Yeah, yeah. He's going he's gonna to pull a Cat Bradley. That's going to yeah. be the new thing for lottery participants. Yeah, let's pull a Cat. Um, number four. CIM Reflections, the California International Marathon, which Megan mentioned um, earlier, was this weekend, and it was fucking awesome. It is such a fun race to coach because athletes run so fast there consistently. I mean, also, I mean, you have your share of challenging races too, but uh, athletes threw down at CIM, and it was so fun. I think for me, a big reflection of CIM is just the the outsized role of uh, pacing groups. Yeah. So there was, you know, a large OTQ pacing group. I, was it twenty five women that got the OTQ at CIM? I think it was significantly. I more think it might have been thirty five. Actually, yeah. yeah. I was I was just reviewing that this morning. And it's so fast. It's two thirty seven, which is five fifty eight or five fifty nine per mile pace for a marathon, and you're getting dozens of women get it, which is just bonkers. And I think the pacing groups, to me, are yeah. a huge benefit of CIM. So on the Patreon podcast this weekend, we were talking about pacing groups, and I mentioned that the the person who's leading the pacing group holds a sign yeah and you push back and you're like they're not holding a sign what are you ridiculous and it turns out they do hold <laughs> a sign our patreon listeners came through and they're like yeah megan was right yeah i think it was it's kind of ridiculous that the leaders of pace groups have to carry a flag the entire race uh indicating that they're doing that i feel like there should be some better method to make this happen and i was very wrong on patreon i mansplained this to megan for a good three minutes <laughs> on patreon.com slash swap swap where we have bonus podcasts every week. Um, and then our community gave me the slap down that I very much de- deserved. To be fair, though, it seems ridiculous that in 2022, we're having pacers hold flags for an entire yeah. marathon. It feels like that increases the risk of rhabdo because <laughs> when are runners ever using their upper body in this format? I feel like we need to go the Zwift format. So yeah. on Zwift, they have avatars. And the avatars that are pacing have this thing that's hovering above their heads. And I feel like we could do that in 2022. Yeah, like, let's... Let's get Elon Musk on it. P- press a button, have a pace group hover above your head. Let's get yeah. on it. Yeah, granted, if we had Elon Musk on it, I'm sure it would 
be spouting some sort of hateful rhetoric <laughs> as it as they went down at 237 marathon pace. But these pace groups are epic. Yeah. And it made me think about, we've talked on here, the benefits of drafting and just how important drafting is for racing. And I think about it constantly in the yeah. cycling world. I mean, I'm such a I'm such an introvert. And then I'll be out there biking and all of a sudden I'll be like introducing myself to various people and be like, hi, I'm Megan, can we draft? <laughs> and I all of a sudden turn into an extrovert um, as soon as we talk about drafting. Yeah. And it's just, it's so beneficial at CIM. And I think that's a big part of why we see, you know, people throwing down in such capacity. Yeah, it's so inspiring what athletes did out there. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Zach Ornelas, who is a teacher, um, a coach. He does almost, and a dad, he does almost all of his miles in the dark. Um, he's been mileage limited um, given all of these constraints. And he ran a 216.01, which is just over five minutes per mile pace, set a big lifetime PR at 31 after training his whole life. I think it really points out that if you have Zach's openness to the day, um, and to just the complexities of life, you can keep progressing long after others might think you're done. So big shout out to Zach and a lot of people like him at CIM who went for it and made themselves vulnerable over many, many years. It's I. It was so cool seeing that and seeing the pictures of him and his family. It was it was really, really cool. Um, okay, let's get on to the Hard Rock Lottery because this is yeah. a lottery where I actually really love statistics. <laughs> so women historically have had, you know, not many spots at Hard Rock. Yeah. And women this year made a push to get more entrants into the Hard Rock Lottery and it started to work. Yeah, so what did they do to make that happen? So this year, um, they kind of changed the policy this year. So they said that at least the percentage of women who apply for the lottery would be selected. Yeah. So this year, 19.7% of the lottery applicants were women, which is awesome. And it's a big increase from years prior. Um, so 29 of the 146 starters at Hard Rock, which is still a really small percentage, but yeah. it's at least, you know, building and growing um, will be women, which is yeah. so cool. But we need to boost this for 2023. Okay. So we're making a swap podcast push. If you have a Hard Rock Lottery, you know, qualifier, put your name in. Yeah. Let's get more women on there. Let's get more women on the start line. Okay, we'll remind people next year. So keep that um, on in your tab that next year we're going to have everybody that listens that gets one of these qualifiers apply. Um, let's see if we can push that number up to... 50%. I'm going to just like throw it out there because I think that... I think we can do it. I think we can do it. Um, and I think a lot of them probably listen to this podcast that would make, it would be relevant to. So let's do it. Okay. I'm going to make an offer. Yeah. If you apply to Hard Rock and you're on the fence about doing it and you're doing it to help women and you get in, we'll help coach you for it. Oh, shit. Okay. Big, big, big. Yeah. Big moment there, yeah, Megan. Yeah, big moment. We're going out there for 2023. Like, we're extremely capacity limited, um, so that's a huge offer. Okay, so. we'll coach two of the women. <laughs> no, no, I, I, we'll put some fine print on it later, but yeah, I yeah. like it. I like that. Yeah. yeah, and maybe we'll even pay entry fee. This, um, is, this is what happens when we do on-the-fly offers on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm having a little bit of an ulcer thinking about that, but uh, you're the one that knows statistics, so I'll just defer. Okay, let's get into some cool training topics here. Uh, we've talked in the past on tapers and how some athletes do not respond to tapers and how we were going to experiment with different things and report back. So now we're here, and we're going to report back about an athlete that has had mixed responses to tapers and what they did differently to have success at their race this weekend. We have been talking a lot about tapers yes. in this household. So I think it it practically structures our dinner table conversations. <laughs> and we're dividing it up into a few different categories. I mean, I think we have taper considerations for fast twitch athletes yeah. and slow twitch athletes and, you know, mileage limited athletes and, you know, stress overloaded athletes. And it's really fun to kind of start thinking about these different paradigms based off of where athletes fall. Yeah. And I think the most interesting thing for the average person listening here is look at your races. If you underperform at races or just feel flat, 
I doubt that's a training explanation because you would see that in your training, like on your normal Saturday. If you're feeling that on races in particular, that probably has something to do with your taper, which is why we're so obsessed with it. Because all the training stuff, we have tons of data on, there's tons of studies on, we've kind of refined our approach. But tapers, different things work for everybody. Actually, I think there's a lot of reasons why someone could get to a race and potentially feel flat or not like themselves. But I think the taper is probably one of the big ones. Yeah. I mean, like what else could they could do to feel flat? Oh my God, there's like 8,000 different things like fueling and sleep and stress and mental health and, you know, caffeine, all these different things. Yeah, but what are more? <laughs> just, just, just kidding. I just wanted to be an asshole. Um, but no, I mean, I do think if it's a repetitive thing, either you're really fucking up something simple around the race True. or it's your taper. Yeah. Um, and so this athlete had, um, his name's Chris Myers, actually. One of the best guys. He's a visual effects artist. He's um, becoming one of the best athletes in the world. He's struggled with cramps on race day, which is abnormal for an elite athlete at this level, especially in races like 50Ks. Um, my possible explanation was that Chris is a little bit more of an intermediate slash fast switch athlete compared to other endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was there, um, but it's tough to know for sure. Other explanations for other athletes could be that the taper reduces your fat oxidation rates, especially male athletes, um, if you're not careful, if you don't have enough aerobic work, or it just kind of makes you flat. And whatever the explanation was for Chris, he had had a couple races where he experienced this, including one where I ran with him back in May in a 50K, and he described having slight feelings of cramps, which is worrisome when you're at the very elite level because Mm -hmm. you can't compete. So we wanted to try different things, always searching for the perfect taper, tried something that was different, unique, and wanted to mention it on the pod. And what what made it different? So basically, he just did more aerobic work. Um, And we talked about this in the context of Athletes like Jim Walmsley, Courtney DeWalter, um, Killian Jornet doing longer runs before their big races, like seven days out. And I wanted to put that into practice with um, someone like Chris in particular. So the way this looks for him is two weeks out from the race, he did uh, 15K. So for an athlete that's listening, think about a power hour, a hard effort along trails that makes you sore or um, like your race. This could be a road marathon, very similar doing like a 10K or 10 mile or something. Um, And then in the next week, he was doing 10 to 12 mile runs most days. Um, On the Wednesday before the race, he had a 10, 8, 6, 4, 2 minute on workout with two minutes easy recovery. So that's a big- On hills or on flat ground? Flat ground. Yeah, okay. So that's a big bulky workout. I call that the speed beast. Speed beast. I like it. Because I have the the um, the flip side on hills is the hill beast. So we got the hill beast and the speed beast. Perfect. So the speed beast 10 days out. He was doing doubles on that Wednesday and Thursday. And then the week before the race, he still did 20 mile long run with mm-hmm. a fast friend. So a week out, he was still doing a breakdown effort. Um, and so that was the structure of the two weeks out. And then, um, in the final week on Tuesday, he did 10 miles, easy, moderate on trails. So like a little bit steadier of an effort, uh, Wednesday, eight miles, Thursday, six miles, Friday, five miles. And the Friday run had five by 30 seconds mod 30 seconds easy. So you think about that, that's like, you shouldn't be necessarily ready for an ultra, but he went to the McDowell Mountain 50K and beat a Rob Carr course record from 2012, back when Rob Carr was the best at this type of short distance ultra racing in the world. So um, not saying it's because of this taper, but I am saying you can get creative in how you experiment. And if you're going to do that, think hard effort two weeks out, good workout 10 days out, good, easy, long run a week out and then taper down from there. It was a really stout performance that he ran. And yeah. I think one one key nature of tapers that I enforce with athletes too, or just reinforce with athletes is the idea of also building invert too. Definitely. So I think, you know, what was his, when he did this 20 mile long run, I, I assume it had a decent amount of vert in it. Yeah, it was like almost 5,000 feet. Yeah, that's perfect. So because, it's a huge stimulus. And right? I think it's important that you maintain those eccentric muscle contractions, especially for athletes that are, you know, per- 
perhaps more intermediate or fast twitch like Chris, yeah. um, is maintaining those, you know, eccentric muscle contractions. So helpful. So I give a lot of like vert cues on the Definitely. taper and I think maintaining vert, solid vert throughout the taper is helpful for these types of athletes. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is Chris who's doing a race that only took him three hours and 21 minutes. If he was doing a hundred mile or this would look a lot different or even a road marathon. Um, and what I'm starting to come around to here is that it's not necessarily about like the specific amount of mileage you do per week, but it is about maintaining the acute stresses a little bit, particularly due to this fat oxidation and muscle breakdown mm-hmm. thing. Like a week out or 10 days out or 14 days out, still doing acute efforts that are pretty stressful on your body, even if they're not that hard, you can still add a lot of rest days in there. So your total mileage might not be a lot, but making sure you don't neglect that because I think for the body, if your first harder effort is essentially in 14 or 21 mm-hmm. days, um, you know, and, and it's happening at a race, the body is just like, fuck this. I'm going to rebel on some level unless an athlete is just so good that they don't need to worry about it at all. And I think this general approach to tapers works really well for intermediate or fast switch muscle fiber athletes, predominant athletes, as you were talking about. I have kind of a different category that I think about is athletes that are perhaps like stress limited. So uh-huh. athletes that are very stressed out, athletes with big sorts of travel schedules um, heading into races or athletes that are more slow twitch. I think it's Often there, you can do a more generous taper. And sometimes I call them steep tapers, where it's really like the week of into that race, it's a really steep taper. But sometimes I experiment even with two rest days. So like Saturday race, rest Monday and Thursday. For an athlete that's like slow twitch or stress limited, um, it can be helpful insurance just for making sure that things feel good come race day. And so I think those are two kind of the two general camps that we have tapers fall into. And then, you know, it's somewhere in the middle for athletes that don't necessarily meet one of those clear criteria. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of overlap there too. Like a good example is Zach Ornelas, who we talked about, did two rest days the week before a 216 marathon. That's a lot, but he's mm-hmm. also really busy, so it falls into that camp. But then he also did pretty intense sessions 10 days out and then a good long run seven days out. And I think that some of the elite athlete practice is starting to coalesce around that. It's like, um, you know, for an athlete that has slower recovery rates, maybe that last big effort is 14 days out or 10 days out. For an athlete like Killian Jornet or Chris Myers, maybe it's seven days out or 10 days out. But make sure that you don't get rid of those in the context of your taper, almost no matter who you are, um, even if it's you know, a good two weeks away from race day. Well, I appreciate that you highlighted that because that's another taper paradigm that I love is having the workout 10 days out, the long run seven days out, and then two rest days to really make sure that you're recovering from that intensity. So I like, you know, maintaining that intensity, but having the added insurance of the extra rest day. And as you mentioned, Killian does that. It's great. Yeah. Okay. So that was a kind of a uh, complex training topic. So I say we skip the training elements discussion and get Perfect. straight into the four fun things moment. What Let's do, you do it. Let's do it. Okay. And then we have science coming after this. So stick with us here. The first thing I want to talk about is we've been watching a lot of World Cup. Uh, pour one out for Team USA. Kind of sad about that. Um, but flopping in the World Cup is pretty intense. Like watching, um, I'm going to call it soccer, but football for our uh, international fans is very stressful to watch because it works very well and they are very good at it so every single time they flop i'm like oh my god that guy was crushed i'm so sorry for him why is the ref not calling a foul and then you watch a replay and you're like oh they blew on him and that's all that happens it's literally it's an exceedingly impressive trait actually if trainers had the ability to flop like yeah. soccer players said we'd have a lot less injuries yeah we should really practice flopping <laughs> perhaps yeah, it's probably good for your ankle because like if you fall the ankle doesn't take the the burden, your face might though. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what I was thinking of is how this applies to everything we do in life. So essentially what these soccer players do is they take every possible little stimulus and turn it up to 11 for the sake of possibly getting a call. It really works. Like sometimes you get uh, penalty kicks from this. Um, people out there are like, he doesn't know shit about soccer, does he? It's like not much. Um, but 
I thought about how we do this in normal life. Um, so a good example would be arguments that we have. And there's some small slight. And I always find myself feeling the urge to turn like this small slight that doesn't necessarily affect me that deeply into this big thing that I can be like, Megan, I win. You look how bad you made me feel just writhing there on the ground in pain. I just did it on the podcast where I was like, yo, they're holding pacing signs yeah. at CIM for the entire marathon. That's my version of flopping. Yeah, exactly. Rubbing, rubbing that mistake in. Um, but so the reflection I wanted to have for normal life is just, hey, if you find yourself wanting to flop emotionally at your loved ones, um, Try not to do it because I find myself doing it all the time where I want to be like, oh man, this gives me emotional points and I'm going to get an emotional penalty kick from this maybe <laughs> if the refs call it. Um, in reality, I think like- well, In, in time, reality, you should get an emotional yellow card. Yeah, for flopping. Yes. Yeah, in reality, I think unless you tear your ACL, you usually don't need to do that emotionally at least. Well, I think the converse, I think about the converse actually quite a bit where I find in relationships where I try not to emphasize things that are really important to me. Oh, yeah. So it's like, it's the opposite. It's like going to the neurotrauma tent in football and being like staggering out of there and being like, I can still play. Okay. I'm good. And that's like in relationships where, you know, you don't, when you really value something and you don't make that known to your partner because you want to play it cool. I like it. Yeah. So maybe there's a good middle ground there between an American football player and then an international football player. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of toughness. But I would just say like, you know, just a constant reminder to cut everyone in your life's a ton of slack. Um, as emphasized by flopping in soccer for some reason. Okay. One other uh, little observation is I'm kind of in the camp that if we put some of our players in the NBA on our soccer track from a young age, the World Cup would turn out a lot differently. It would be so fun to watch. I'm feeling Zion Williamson in goal. Oh God. Can you imagine that? I mean, he'd be so big and he can, I mean, he can jump so high. Yeah. He'd be unstoppable. Zion Williamson and goal would be a really good one. What I like is John ja Morant, the guard for the Memphis Grizzlies to take header, to be um, a striker for corner kicks because he's six, five with a 44 inch vertical. Oh. Who's getting above John ja Morant for a header across a corner kick. That'd be so fun. I just kind of want to see LeBron at center midfield. <laughs> that would be pretty great. He might need some endurance training, but... That's true. Yeah. And, you know, the international players are the best athletes in the world, too. But I'm such an American that I'm just like, hey, if Allen Iverson ever played soccer... Oh, he'd be so good. The U.S. men's national team would have won the World Cup in, like, 2002. He'd be flopping all over the field, though. Yeah. He'd be the chief flopper. You think Allen Iverson would flop? Oh, my God. Allen Iverson? Of course. Yeah. Well, granted... I'm well, he, I mean, he'd be ejected first for, you know, fouling, and then he'd flop. <laughs> I'm saying all this, but I think Allen Iverson actually was on the team that lost... Uh, the world, the FIBA World Championships in or the Olympics in 2004. So, oh, true. If he's not winning the basketball World Championships, maybe he won't win the soccer <laughs> ones either. I need to rethink this uh, very quickly. Okay, number two on the the four things is toughness as a scalpel, not an axe. Uh, and this is in relation to Megan's journey postpartum. Uh, so, if you follow this at all with her heart. You remember that she ran through pain and ran some amazing workouts with a heart that was at the time royally fucked and we had no idea. And so I think that's a version of axe toughness or like sledgehammer toughness. And now we're going for the scalpel toughness, applying it in very clinical surgical settings. When we started talking about this, it actually, yeah. it really resonated with me because I think for my whole life, my big mission, like starting from a young athlete in soccer and field hockey and basketball, yeah. it was, I would always outwork people. That was, that was how I would excel as an athlete. And so I would be out there swinging the ax at midnight, you know, <laughs> doing, doing something when my competitors were sleeping. And, you know, I think in endurance sports, that principle doesn't work. It, yeah. you know, it leads to lots of challenges of the body. It's, you know, not easy to sustain in the 
long term. And it's so helpful to think about it in that way and to harness those powers into yeah. a tiny, tiny little scalpel and, you know, to use that effort of hard work in in different ways and to spread it out. And I think for me, hard work is having the discipline to do zone one and take it real yeah. chill before a podcast. I love that so much. I think I remember a story when you were a soccer player of you just sitting there and shooting goals until like late, late, late at night um, as a little, little girl. Is that true? Am I remembering this correctly? It's, yeah, it's true. Well, I mean, I think that was after one game where I, I missed like a kind of a wide open net and it yeah. was very traumatizing to me. And so <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to do that the rest of my life. Yeah. And I went home and I shot goals until like way past dark. Yeah. And the weird part about that is that I feel like that mindset has gotten you and also gotten me a lot of success in various things. Like it made you a top recruit in field hockey. Um, it got you, you know, academically, it helped you a lot when you were young. One med school, when you lock yourself in a study room for hours, it actually works. <laughs> and it works in a lot of disciplines. And, you know, I think, you know, in a lot of disciplines, it might work until it doesn't. But I think yeah. it especially works until it doesn't in, in running. And I think almost everything as you progress in it, because you gain more skills, you gain the ability to do more harm to yourself, right? At first, it's like, yeah, you're just doing shit and it's not that big of a deal. And then endurance sports being like maybe the best microcosm of the better you get at it, the more you're dealing with a bazooka and not an air gun. And you need to be really careful about where you point a bazooka. Um, and so I've seen you make that transition here and it's been super cool because you're also not just making it and running. I feel like parenting has made you think about it a little bit in the context of like the type of life you want in the future too mm -hmm. with all of your different work opportunities. It's so great. Except for me, I think I want to change it from a scalpel. I'd rather it be a wand. A wand? Yeah, I'm thinking like a really fun little Harry Potter wand that you just yield every once in a while. Okay. Yeah. How do you cut into something with a wand? A through a spell. Through a spell. Okay. Yes. <laughs> great. Where have you been in fantasy world, David? <laughs> I wasn't following you there. Um, yeah. Maybe it can be like one of those vibrator wands. Oh, so fun. Yeah, oh, they yeah. should make those. <laughs> Definitely. So for anyone out there, we will do open heart surgery with a vibrator wand. Oh, yeah. That's, okay. that's, a, new, that's a new surgical field. <laughs> okay. Number three here is the Western states uh, trans and non-binary policy that just came out last week. Um, it's incredibly amazing and inclusive. And we want to thank Western states for being so open to transgender and non-binary athletes. And I think what's so cool is Western states is essentially the Super Bowl of ultra running in the yeah. U.S. at this point. And it's such an amazing precedent for other races because when the Super Bowl of, of ultra running, you know, has this, this procedure and protocol, I think it's going to set in place a trickle down effect where other races will start to adopt this, yeah. I hope. And so thank you, Western states, for being a leader in ultra running and also, you know, in this area. Too. Yeah. And it's so interesting to click on the um, Twitter um, of this policy being released and look at some of the comments. You know, most people are really supportive. And then there are people that are like half bots, like actual Twitter <laughs> bots that don't have any followers and only tweet on this topic. And then people that clearly this is their only topic. And I'm always confused when we talk about this because I think that there are some listeners out there who might feel a little weird about this as we always try to address. But in general, like if we talked about this, it would be civil and kind. And even if we didn't agree at the end of it, I think it would be constructive. But like in social media, there are people that have made this their whole identity is arguing against inclusion. And I'm confused about what the impetus to do that is, especially from the non-bots and the non-people, like the people that aren't just watching Fox News and being indoctrinated into things that don't exist, but like the people that are fighting, quote, fighting for women's sports, whatever the fuck that means, who might have some sort of reputation. I'm like, I don't understand what world they're seeing. Like the real world data 
it's so confusing. And so, well, I think they're seeing a different world. I yeah. mean, it's like the AI machine, they're being fed totally different That's information. True. And, yeah. you know, when you generate AI information from totally different, from a totally different starting place, you're going to end up at a different ending yeah. place. Well, and so, yeah, as we've always talked about on this issue, like we're open to changes in how things evolve, especially with real world data. But right now, if you disagree, always think back to whatever apocalyptic predictions you've been fed through your own AI machine, which we all have our own AI machines, as Megan said. It's not just, you know, we're not accusing others of having bias that we don't necessarily have. Um, think if they've actually come true in the real world, especially in this case in ultra running. Uh, no, they haven't. And uh, what we always say, let's get some more transgender athletes on the start line winning big races because that will be a sign of movement toward fairness, not away from it. I am so excited for this future. Okay, number four. Um, this is a little fun one before we get to the final study to end it. Is on diaper cream and chafing. Uh, we mentioned this on our Patreon uh, where we talked about little Leo, our baby, um, using desitin for uh, his diaper rash. This shit is magic. It is so good. I love how you frame this. You you feel like Leo is, he's using his own infantile powers to apply desitin to himself. We are giving, we are applying <laughs> the desitin to him. And you know, it's both of us. When you apply the desitin, David puts it on in such wild quantities. Yeah. But it works. It works so well. And why are ultra runners not using this? Yeah, like we're worried about getting chafing from just running a few miles with wetness. He's dealing with chafing while sitting in his pee and poop all day. That's a big deal. Granted, we might be running in our pee and poop, which is also tough. Um, but it clearly works well. And we put it out on Patreon that like, oh, shouldn't you use this in ultras? And tons of people said yes. Not only is it being used, but it's being used by some of the very best runners in the world, including one runner who apparently also wears a diaper sometimes in these long track races while wearing desitin to be able to run farther. So... Yeah, we're just throwing it out there. Maybe get yourself some of this and try it. We're going to have the, a sponsorship from Desitin. We're going to have Athletic Greens and Desitin paired together. It'd be an interesting podcast sponsorship. Desitin.com slash swap. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Do you think we'd be making bank off royalties then? You never know. Yeah, you never know. Maybe there's a big uh, silent majority out there seeking that Desitin liberation. Well, we should start selling uh, singlets ahead because when we when we changed uh, Leo, you call onesies singlets. And yeah. now I have adopted that and I can't unsee it. Yeah. I use singlets every time I go to change Leo. I'm like, where's the, where's the new singlet we're going to put on? Where's yeah, well, the- he's growing fast and they're getting tighter and tighter. And every single time I'm like, that singlet is very arrow. So he's getting his arrow gains. He kind of looks like he's in a speed suit. He's a particularly good white speed suit, and I put, it in, I put him in it quite often, and I get excited. Yeah, he's looking sleek as hell right now. Okay, let's finish it up with a cool study that just came out on the importance of downhill running in ultras. Um, this was in the Journal of Functional Morphology and Kinesiology. It's a cool journal. Um, That's an interesting one. Yeah, well, my guess is that you submit it to a lot of different places, and the journal that it accepts, you publish at, um, which points out that it is kind of a narrow field, right? Like, I was writing an article on this and I was debating starting it out with the idea that, you know, when I was in college and when I went to law school and then when I graduated and did a fellowship and then when I got my job, I wanted to change the world. I wanted to save the world. And now I just want to just like have fun and do cool shit. And I feel like that's what these researchers did. They like started curing cancer and now we're like, uh, we're just going to look at splits and ultra marathons. <laughs> I actually pushed back against that, though. I was like, David, that's not very kind to the researchers. No, I think it is. I mean, they they must acknowledge it because what this study does is... Well, it I feel like the journal acknowledges it. <laughs> it's true. Or at least the uh, journals that probably uh, rejected it. Um, it looks at five editions of UTMB and five editions of CCC, along with three editions of Havelina 100 Miler and three editions of the 100K. Um, in total, that's 16,518 athletes that finished these races. They only included finishers and 
and people with complete data sets. So if you missed a split, you weren't included in these results. It is curious, though, to look at the gender breakdown. So that was 14,000, approximately 14,000 male athletes and 2,000 female athletes, yeah. which again gets back to our hard rock push as we need more female athletes entering these races uh, because it also boosts these studies too. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if it's changed since um, this data gathering period ended in 2019. I'm sure it has, yeah. And I think it's getting better and better. So hell yeah, all the all the women out there. Um, so the way that they did this is they categorized each split as uphill, downhill, or level based on the data between checkpoints. Um, also, they had a um, category for mixed um, the level ground running and the mixed were tossed out. Um, so they ignored those splits altogether. Um, and so what we're looking at now is uphill running and downhill running as characterized by these splits and races. And then they normalized everything with average race speed, given your entire uh, distance, the average split time on each individual split. And then you divided that to get your relative split speed. Um, and then they categorized all of it as the top 50% of finishers, the bottom 50% of finishers, and finally elite, the top 10 men and the top 10 women in each field. The big findings from the study, I yeah. think, are going to be really helpful for informing coaching and training theory going forward, especially at these races longer than 100 kilometers. So what they found was that the relative split speed decreased more on downhills than in uphills in the second yeah. half. And the relative split speed, as you were just describing, is that average split speed compared to the overall finish, um, finishing time of the race of the racers. Um, so really downhills are where it's at. So yeah. better finish, the better athletes, better finishers were running the downhills better in that second part of the race. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think about that uphills slow down way less than downhills do. Downhills have these massive slowdown processes, which are subject to a lot of different variables, but it applies across the entire field mm -hmm. that the top finishers were the best downhill runners. So um, there's a lot of implications there that we'll get into in a second, um, but it's really, really, really cool. Um, another really interesting finding here is that women have bigger positive splits. So that's kind of counterintuitive as well, that women run the second half of races slower relatively than men do. So women slow down more in the second half. Well, I, it actually contradicts some of the existing research, the body of research out there that looks at gender differences in pacing, yeah. because women often are known to be better pacers in things like marathons, half marathons, et cetera. And there's large bodies of evidence that show that. But I think ultras are unique from a strength standpoint. So, yeah. you know, I think strength really plays a big role in ultra performance and obviously testosterone, heck of a drug. <laughs> and I think it, it goes to show that male athletes are technically, you know, have that strength advantage in the second half of, you know, performing at races. Yeah. So um, it's just so cool to look at the split data. I've always wondered when I'm tracking these races, what, um, Basically, are there any patterns out there? Because you see them when you're tracking. You're like, I know this split is important, but I don't always know why. And when I think about some of the ones that come to mind, I think about the drop down into Cormayor at UTMB or the drop down to Rucky Chucky at um, Western States. Perhaps that's what we're seeing here is that for some reason, which we're going to get into in a sec, downhills are the decider. Um, particularly in the second half of these races. And I pulled this quote because I think the authors described the outsized importance of, downs of downhills really well. And this is what they wrote. In summary, the capacity to deliver a higher effort in the downhill sections, as well as the capacity to limit performance decrease in the downhill sections in the later race stages, appears as a determinant of better trail race finish placements. For elite athletes, no difference in pacing strategy was observed between faster and slower finishers, with women pacing less evenly than men and slowing down more in the downhill sections in the later race stages. Future studies should should focus on how terrain steepness affects pacing strategy, i.e. steeper or milder uphill downhill traits, as well as on the role played by flat sections on overall performance in ultra trail races. Yeah, and that's actually really interesting because this was Javelina and 
UTMB. I'd be curious if you broke out javelina and UTMB, which is javelina's flatter, mm-hmm. UTMB steeper, if you'd see uh, different results. Um, so my big conclusion here is get fit and fast. That is still really important. And then focus and prepare for steep downs. So to put that all together, we have three big takeaways related to this study. Um, so the first takeaway, uphill speed matters, but think more about the starting point of uphill fitness than the broader idea of uphill endurance. In other words, your speed fucking matters, right? Like uphill running economy correlates with flat and downhill running economy. And that fitness is still the denominator here that determines how good you're going to be or like what your performance ceiling is. But uphill endurance is kind of maintained across almost every athlete studied with Mm -hmm. all these different training uh, variables. So it points out like once you're good or whatever level you are at running uphill, yes, it fades, but it probably fades more dependent on how you respond to downhills than how you respond to uphills. Well, I think about that fade in the context of just breaking it down by numbers. Yeah. So if you think about an athlete that is power hiking at four miles an hour on an uphill, that's actually a really fast power hike, it's depending so upon the speed of, uh, or depending on the grade of the train that the athlete's power hiking on. Yeah. If that reduces down to 3.2 or three miles per hour in the later stages of a race, that delta is not going to have as much impact as an athlete who's dropping yeah. downhills four minutes per mile or six minutes per mile or even sometimes more. And so I think those those downhills really do start to add up. Yeah, they really do. Um, and that gets to point number two here, which is that downhill proficiency is a sk- skill that needs to be continually developed. So that uphill stuff that we talk about, that is speed. That is the thing we are working on in the background year after year after year that adds up and influences everything. So that is the denominator that makes all these numbers translate to a higher performance potential. But But then on race day, that downhill proficiency ends up having a huge impact. Like the uphill separations are not much. That makes sense what you said, like the delta is not huge. But even amongst athletes that, um, you know, are running really fast and others that are hiking, like it's not going to make a massive difference. Um, Whereas the downhill skill, it is something that athletes can really, really, really get better at. And then it plays a role in how these races unfold. And I think, how do you get better at it? And I think for me, it's actually, it's curious to think about the idea that downhills are actually correlated with uphills. So running economy is going to hit both uphills and downhills. Um, But I think the way that to get better at repeated downhills at the end of a long race is point number three, which is, um, and I'll read this, downhill endurance is one of the most key elements of ultra performance, harness using the repeated bout effect. So it's about consistently training the downhills to get your legs ready for that, you know, the eccentric muscle contractions that you're going to need at the end of trail races. Yeah. And what's interesting is that this applies not just at UTMB, which is super steep. And so we understand that um, with all the downhill signs, we've gone over on this podcast before that that has a major impact on fatigue resistance in these races and that'll affect performance also at javelina where the downhills are very gentle basically what most people would consider roads Mm -hmm. essentially Um, and it points out that those eccentric muscle contractions are happening all the time in these long events even flat road races as your foot is contacted with the ground longer, um, you have more of a hip sink, more knee sink. That causes an eccentric contraction in your quadricep muscle, mm-hmm. just like steep downhills do. So training these downhills, uh, even steeper downhills when you're doing flatter races, can have perhaps a role in fatigue resistance, which is one of our big theories that we've had all along, is that there's something about doing high amounts of downhills 
that make athletes perform better late in races, even if those races are pretty flat. And question for you. So yeah. when I think about this intuitively, I would think that downhills might not be as important for shorter distance trail races. Yeah. But I think actually probably the same theory applies where, you know, the repeated downhill effect does matter. And, you know, you think about the idea that uphills and downhills are correlated still holds, but I think, you know, it is really important to train the downhills for the, for shorter events too. Do you think it holds? Yeah, I think it definitely holds. I mean, there's studies on fell races in the UK and other short trail races that find that downhills have the highest delta by a huge margin, even relative to flats, even unexplained by the mm-hmm. things like pacing. Um, and that's really fascinating when you think about it. My guess is that the fatigue mechanisms are different. So like when you go into these really long races, we're looking at different things, but the skill element is the same. And then because athletes at the short races do them so fast, the breakdown elements still happen and then affect the rest of the race. So um, you see this at the mountain champs every year where like if there's a multiple loop course, athletes will start climbing way slower on subsequent loops uh, after downhills. So in other words, the downhills then impact their ability to run uphill rather than the uphill fatigue. So always remember that even though the uphills will pay your bills, the downhills are what give you a bank account in the first place. It actually makes me think about the idea that when an athlete comes to me and they excel on downhills as a coach, I get really excited. And that matters to me actually more than uphill importance. It's sometimes hard to train downhills too as a coach. Yeah, it's so hard. And it's one of those practice moments. And, um, you know, we've talked about before how to improve it. But basically all all it is to say is keep getting your uphills faster, keep getting your speed faster. But then remember downhills are something you can be great at. Don't accept the narrative that you're not great at them because so much of this is skill-based. So much of it is neuromuscular. And as soon as you open up that window to be like, I can be good, every day you get a little bit better. And then that becomes part of your physiology as you adapt to it over time. Do what I think is a good way to get even better at downhills? What? Listening to country music on repeat. <laughs> Let Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> That's the perfect end to that. Okay, on to Listener Corner. Uh, hey, David and Megan, I just wanted to let you know how much I've enjoyed your parenting stories on the SWAT podcast. I've been listening to the podcast for a while. Not only are the recent interviews amazing, but lately it's been so great to hear you normalize the hard parts of parenthood and to celebrate gratitude. I'm also really looking forward to hearing about how Megan reclaims her athletic self in the next months. The scalpel discussion is one of the big (laughs) things. Uh, For me, I didn't start to truly love running until after I had kids. I was a super slow and casual runner through grad school and afterwards, and I enjoyed it enough to try a few short races and stick with it, but it wasn't until after becoming a parent that running became a part of me. I had a terribly difficult time with breastfeeding, parentheses, and thank you for that realistic baby baby formula shout out, by the way. Still giving Leo that good old baby formula, four ounces every once in a while. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so helpful when that happens. And I've become very competitive with uh, pumping actually. Yeah. I, need, I need to set my pumping PRs every night. Just to try to meet the same quantities. <laughs> yes, as <the> exactly. <laughs> Maybe I should apply the scalpel approach to pumping. Yeah. Dude eats a lot. So I, you might need an axe for that one. Um, not to mention a couple of miscarriages. Oh, sorry about that. Um, in postpartum anxiety that hit me like a freight train a few months in with my second kiddo. As the fog slowly lifted on that years-long shit sandwich, running was how I learned to love and celebrate what my body could do again, instead of focusing on how I felt it had let me down. I'm not a fast or competitive runner, but I've worked hard to do a couple of marathons in a 50K, and I have more on my to-do list. Most importantly, I get to run through the nearby state park on early mornings and see mist and bison and foxes and fall colors and snow and more snow. Okay, you had me at snow. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't put into words how happy and grateful it makes me. The best part, now I get to watch my kids try out athletics like soccer and running their first 5K. And the excitement and pride they have is one of my biggest joys. Watching them figure out how strong they are is amazing. And you guys are going to love watching it so much with Leo. And there will be other parts that you don't love, but your perspective about living fully in the moment 
is a real gift. Thank you for sharing it. This email just means so much. It's I mean, I so feel like good. for us, we've seen already that parenting is hard, but it is truly that like experience to practice love. Yeah. And I feel like it's also shared love with the community too, you know, getting to to vibe and to experience something collectively together. And it just, that means so much. Yeah. I love what you said there, practicing love, like um, whether you're a parent or not, or anything you have in life, like looking at everything as an excuse to try to practice it as much as we can um, is so cool. Like we were going to talk earlier about Freudenfreude. Um, so it's uh, contrasted with Schadenfreude, which is like taking joy in other suffering. And this Freudenfreude is like a joke, but taking joy in other people's joy. Um, and I think that like the cool thing about parenting is every single day you get to wake up and be like, I'm going to love this little thing so much. <laughs> and hopefully that brings more love into my life and the world as well. Um, but no matter where that context is, there are always those excuses for love, I think. Um, and I don't know, I think it's constant life work to try to shine it as much as you can. Something I struggle with all the fucking time. I was thinking earlier this week about how um, sometimes I see someone's coached not by me and I'm like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> like, what the fuck is that thought about? Some random stranger on the internet. I yeah. know, I feel, I feel the exact same thing. And I love the word Freud and Freud. It yeah. sounds ridiculous in the way of like, sometimes you need to harbor ridiculous energy to yeah. bring, to be able to like cheer on and to actually like, you know, experience that joy of others. But I love, I just love how it sounds in addition to, to what it actually means. Yeah. So maybe that's the big word of the day to leave you with is Freud and Freud. Let's take as much joy as we can in the joy of others. Um, and we absolutely love you all. You all are the best. Woo! Woo!